My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcast group by night, and FOMO Sapiens 24-7. Now, today is a really, I, I'm, I think it's a great episode. I'm very excited about it because we're going to be joined by the creator of the concept called The Lean Startup there was a book called The Lean Startup by Eric Reese. Eric was the student of Steve Blank. And so Steve is here with us to talk about the concept and how he and Pete Newell, who comes out of the military, are applying it at Stanford and all over the world to innovate in areas like military and climate and government. So it's a really interesting look at this concept, The Lean Startup, which I super super love. It changed my life when I read Eric Reese's book. And when I, when I found out that we we're going to have Steve on the show, I was just very excited because I remember when I read that book and I read about Steve and, and learned about his work, I just thought this person is changing the way that startups are built. The idea you have to have tons and tons of money and that you just sort of build a startup in a laboratory and you don't actually go out into the real world and figure out what works before you spend money to build it. The idea that we would change the way we do things has made so many things possible. That's why you can start a company with very little money, and that's why we have so much more entrepreneurs out there today. So it's just a seminal work, and we're gonna talk about the story behind The Lean Startup. We're gonna talk about the work that Steve and Pete are doing right now. So in addition to creating The Lean Startup, methodology. Steve is an adjunct professor at Stanford and a senior fellow for innovation at Columbia, and he has been described as the father of modern entrepreneurship. He's written two books, The Four Steps to the Epiphany and The Startup Owner's Manual, and he blogs at steveblank.com. Now, Pete Newell is a nationally recognized innovation expert whose work is transforming how the government and other large organizations compete and drive growth. He started his career in the military and was actually, he retired as an army colonel, and he is currently the CEO of BMNT. He has written a book with Steve Blank, so I guess Steve has three books now, and that book is called Hacking for Defense, and together they teach this course, Hacking for Defense, both at Stanford as well as all over the world. Now, on today's show, obviously, I've got Steve here. I'm not going to blow it and forget to ask him about the story behind the Lean Startup and what is the Lean Startup. So if you are familiar with it but can't quite remember or if you haven't heard about it, you basically get like a free semester of Stanford class in about four minutes. It's masterful how he explains it. Then we're going to talk about how Steve and Pete are applying this to solve really big problems and getting young people excited about doing something that has a benefit for the public, not just going to work for a social media company. And finally, we're going to get a very interesting take from each of them about what separates the great entrepreneurs from the rest because they're teaching entrepreneurs. So they, they get to see lots of people and they get to see who sinks and who swims and what separates the two. All right. Before we get to the interview, though, I do have my small ask. And my small ask is this. If you know somebody who is a fan of the Lean Startup, send them this episode, share it with them, and then suggest that they kindly subscribe and give a rating to the show because that helps more people discover it. All right, and now on to the interview. So as you know, I like to start every interview with the same question, and today is no exception. So I started by asking Steve this question. What's the most important decision that you've had to make to get to where you are today? 
Uh, I, I guess I'd have to say, uh, you know, uh, having been in the military and Pete being in the military is the antithesis of uh, military advice, uh, which says never volunteer for anything. I, in fact, volunteered for everything. Um, I showed up more than most people, and that just changed my life. Um, you know, I stuck out my thumb, saw where it would go, and, and when other people were choosing safety and security and, and uh, you know, a set of knowns, I was more comfortable discovering what was over the next hill. And that changed my career almost every year. still does. That is that's that's fun with savings right there. I'm the same way. I think a lot of people who listen to the show are. Now, I do want to start because, you, you know, Steve is somebody who many of you know his work. He is the creator of The Lean Startup and the book of the same title by Eric Ries was a big hit. And I remember I read that book on a plane in 2008 and I had come out of venture capital where we plowed tons of money into companies that failed and it was money was getting wasted here and there. And I read that book and I remember where I was when I read the book, that first chapter, it, it, it kind of broke my head a little bit and it made me see the world a different way. So I am definitely a Steve Blank fan. And uh, I, I just want to, you know, for people who maybe, you know, they're familiar with it, but they haven't had the chance to hear it from your mouth. Tell us about the lean startup philosophy, because I think, you know, it's just a great way to start our conversation. Great. So you could get the entire uh, semester class in about three minutes here. But, uh, <laughs> so, so, so the, and I'll try to make it in one sentence, which is, or two sentences. One is the, the big observation is startups weren't smaller versions of large companies, which for, as a VC, that is a big duh. That's probably a billion dollar insight right there is that large companies execute what we now call known business models, but startups search for them. And that distinction between search and execution had never been articulated before. And the other famous line about lean is, therefore, there are no facts inside your building, so get the hell outside. Because all you have on day one is a series of untested assumptions, which really makes a startup a faith-based enterprise, a religious activity, until you turn that faith into facts. So that technically the lean startup really is the work of three people. My observation is that there are no facts inside the building. So I developed a methodology called customer development, which said, hey, if, if so, let's get out and, and talk to people, not a giant focus group, but to inform the founder's vision. And that's a key distinction. We're not adding up all the feature requests. We're trying to understand, or, are we in the right place talking to the right people? trying to find what uh, Mark Andreessen coined product market fit, the fit between the, the customers and the, the potential thing you're building, whether it's a product or service. Eric Reese's contribution, who was my best student ever, uh, was, look, Steve, you've invented customer development, but, but you know, you grew up in a world of waterfall engineering where you built the product serially. Look, in the 21st century, software and hardware people are figuring out how to build products iteratively and interactively. So while you're outside that building, why don't we build what we now call minimum viable products? I call them minimum feature sets in my book. Eric had, a, I thought, a better name called minimum viable products and put them in front of these customers you're talking to. So you can not only get, you know, kind of qualitative data, you get quantitative reactions to the things you're building. And by the way, when you're when you're showing them those MVPs, you could do something that no VC in the 20th century allowed you to do. And that's change your mind and change your mind based on real data. It used to be the only real hard facts we'd have is you build the product and alpha test, beta test, first customer ship, and then and only then 
and back then yen then meant years would you get actual feedback and find out the product wasn't selling here you could get feedback early and you could do something called a pivot a substantive change to to whatever you're building whether or to who the customers are or whether the pricing is wrong or the channel is wrong and then the third piece of lean so first is customer development second is agile engineering and the third was well, what hypothesis should I be testing? That is, what assumptions? Is it customers? Is it channels? And whatever. Well, someone named Alexander Osterwalder had just written a book called Business Model Design. Um, and uh, he came up with something called the Business Model Canvas, which was in a single piece of paper. I'd say about 80 to 90% of what you need to test was on a single diagram. And we kind of adopted the Business Model Canvas of, okay, while you're out the building, here's the roadmap in case you forget Go back and validate, you know, write down all your assumptions, use yellow sticky notes because you're going to be changing them. And this is what we're testing with our customer development and agile engineering uh, uh, MVPs. So in a nutshell, that's lean. It's those three components, customer development, agile engineering and the business model canvas. And, you know, the Valley kind of adopted it, um, but there were no classes. uh, Big businesses didn't use it. And then the world changed in a, a couple of ways we'll talk about a bit later, one with Pete Newell showing up and, and the other when the Harvard Business Review put it on its cover. But that's, uh, that's the semester in, the, in, in maybe three and a half minutes. Yeah, and it's, I mean, there's so much in there, but I would say if I could, I would bake that into my oatmeal and eat it for breakfast every morning because it is, it is like, you know, I've seen as somebody who's invested in companies all over the world and traveled all over the world, whether you're in Buenos Aires or you're in Colombia or you're in Bangladesh, like people are talking about this methodology and building companies. So it's really changed the world. FOMO. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. FOMO. Now, you mentioned Pete. I have Pete right here, and I want to bring you in, Pete, now, because you come out of the Army. You know, you've been in the defense world, and you teamed up with Steve to create this concept called hacking defense. Now, it's interesting because there's always been a relationship between the university world and the defense world, right? Especially because in the early days of venture capital, so much of the the money that that, that built the industry came from the government. But, you know, I, I'm curious, you know, now we're, we're, we're farther along, how did you end up teaming up with Steve to to build this program? So you asked the question about what one decision I made that did the most to get me where I am today. In the middle of working on a project for a, a government client, when I didn't have time to do anything, I agreed to have coffee with a guy who I'd never met. And I freed up 20 minutes to sit down and talk to Steve Blank. 
you know, turned into a four and a half hour conversation on a couple of dry erase boards. And, and that single act allowed, um, you know, serendipity to strike, which is now struck multiple times. Um, and that's probably the, the genesis of, of most of whatever happened. It was a completely accidental meeting that, that turned into, I, I guess the, the understanding that, you know, I was running the Army Skunk Works before I came to Silicon Valley. And the model that I used to pull problems off the battlefield and boil them down into projects and call those things down into things that we actually would incubate and deliver back, when drawn on a dry erase board, looked exactly like what Steve had been doing. We had different start points. He started with opportunities, and I started with problems. But but the the dialogue we had on the diagrams were nearly identical. We just used different language. Um, much to much to Steve's credit, and I think you know the benefit of the country. On the way out the door, he stopped and he said, "You know, we're going to take everything I've ever done with Lean, and we're going to combine it with you do, and we're going to help the country." And, and that was the genesis for what we were doing. The, the actual hacking for defense, uh, I, I credit a student uh, in the back of the room one day with causing it to happen. So this project I was working on was was based on the premise that you can take a government problem using words that nobody understands and translate that into plain language and then further do discovery with people outside the military to discover that problem's digital twin in the commercial world translate it again and recruit people to work on the problem because it's important to both. So that was what this exercise was about. Um, we were doing the outbrief for that uh, with, and I met Steve in the middle of this, but we're outbriefing this with former SECDEF Bill Perry, who was uh, at Stanford, plus a bunch of other luminaries. And one of the students from Stanford who we had, had recruited you know, was in the room. And, and finally, we looked at Bill Perry at the end of this and said, you know, this is great. I, I used a bunch of Stanford students over spring break, and it was a great project, and, and it, it was fascinating. However, it's not scalable because Stanford students, you know, during the year, they quite frankly, they got classes, they're busy, and, and they don't do side work. <laughs> and the students stood up in the back of the room and said, wait a minute, at this point, a class at Stanford, I would have taken it. And, you know, 30 seconds later, Bill Perry and Steve Blank are looking at each other going, guess what you guys are going to do? We're going to create a class called Hacking for Defense at Stanford University. And I don't know, Steve, what was it? Nine months later, we kicked off the first class? Yeah, I think I, I think a lot, a lot quicker. But, uh, yeah. you know, it's a testament to where we teach as well, is that Stanford and our department in the engineering school, uh, MSNE, allows us to stand up new classes uh, at an alarming rate, at least for a university, um, and allowed us to, to kind of test this out. And, and it was a spinoff of the existing Lean Launchpad class we had been teaching, but, uh, but still their flexibility in allowing us to do that. And, uh, and, and as you pointed out, Stanford and Silicon Valley have a long history in, in connection of uh, supporting the country in, in different ways. Um, so yeah, it was kind of exciting. And and, uh, you know, for my motivation, Patrick, was at the same time Pete was was uh, doing this and running his military career uh, through a couple of decades and a couple of battlefields. Uh, I had spent four years in the Air Force during Vietnam and uh, 
Um, and, and actually, in my entire Silicon Valley career and, and as an educator, it's always stuck in my mind that the country actually did itself a massive disservice when, when we ended any form of national service. And I don't mean just the draft. I just mean, you know, some form of having 18 year olds connect with people outside their cultural ghettos or silos um, and that Facebook and social media has actually amplified the, that the disconnection in the last five years or so. And um, I just thought any way to kind of get uh, students working on mission driven things, whether it was defense or, or diplomacy or climate or something um, could be, you know, a very small but important contribution to, to bringing the country together. And this was even before it, it got even further apart than it is today. Um, so the, the same time we spun up Hacking for Defense, we also spun up Hacking for Diplomacy at Stanford simultaneously. Um, you know, I was working with Pete on, on defense and uh, Professor Jeremy Weinstein and uh, uh, at Stanford and Zvika Krieger, who was uh, the State Department's technical representative to Silicon Valley, um, and, and both started simultaneously. And, and uh, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but was pleasantly surprised that students were equally interested in working on other people's problems that is mission driven um, uh, entrepreneurship than they were uh, their problems. And so that's that's how I ended up there. I love it. You're giving a you're giving a sneak peek to some future guests because we'll have Jeremy on the show coming up a little later now. I think a lot of people, when they when they think about innovation, you know, it's like oftentimes, you know, we think about the consumer innovation or software or business, but the military, I mean, it is a huge organization with very talented people with a very large percentage of our budget in the United States going to fund all of these operations. It has global reach. So Pete, I'd love to, as somebody who, you know, is from the military, and spent your career there before you, you went off and started your own company. What are the types of challenges that you are trying to solve for that address the needs of the modern military? And so, you know, first I would say is that there are only a couple of problems within DOD that don't have twins in the commercial world someplace. And oftentimes is we just talk about them differently, but, but I'm finding that 99% of the time, um, if if I express a, a problem that DOD is working on, given enough time, I can find not just one, but but several different places in the commercial world where that problem pops up again. You know, the, the big things, and you'd be surprised, is, you know, obviously there's, you know, a lot of the uh, how do we use AI and machine learning and, and how are we going to ramp up autonomy in yeah, but as you peel those problems back, you find out it, it's, um, you know, first it's about computer science, and second, there's uh, material science side to it. Because what are the new new composites and new energy systems that we're going to drive, you know, completely new systems of things? You know, if you think about the advent of quantum, you know, quantum will require new data centers that have to be super energy efficient, but they're also going to require new transmission lines for information, so 5G, 6G, 7G. Um, that then um, opens up the opportunity to create new sensor systems that gather data that we never considered useful. So it's really complex, but but at the same time, it's not. Um, the you know we have what is it fifty six universities in the United States this year teaching 
hacking for defense. There are 15 more in the UK and I think four in Australia. Yeah, and amongst those, as we source the problems that we send to the universities, I would say that probably 30 to 40% are related to data. How to capture it, how to store it. Um, data analysts, and you know, these days jokingly refer to themselves as data janitors. Is is they're not actually doing analysis; they're merely trying to move the data around and and, and make sense of it. So data makes up a lot of it, and, and there are lots of you know background text. Um, there are a lot of business process and policy issues related to the speed at which tech is being um, brought in and attempted to use. So surprisingly, the class doesn't just touch tech. We're actually dealing with the policy issues around, you know, you know, we had policies written in the 60s and 70s before anybody ever thought that some of this tech, you know, it was all Buck Rogers stuff back then. Um, you now have to sort out because the policies actually prevent you from using the tech to the extent that it will do what it was intended to, yet we keep trying to bring it in. So I, I can talk problems, everything from how you hire people to how you keep them to, um, to the systems you actually use, to weapon systems. It, it, it touches everything, quite frankly. Yeah, so it's not just guns and bombs. It's about running a large organization and you can translate those over into the private sector as well, which I think a lot of people probably didn't, you know, I, I hadn't sort of intuitively thought of that as I was researching this program. Now, Steve, I'd love to, you know, as you have taken students through this all over the world, I'd love to just hear a story, kind of a favorite story of of a, an innovation that has come out of this process that, you know, has a chance to really do something big in the world. Well, well, Pete and I laugh is that in our first class, there was a, a, a set of scientists and engineers from Stanford who had this crazy idea of replacing the billion-dollar Battlestar Galactica satellites we, we have that look through clouds um, using something called synthetic aperture radar. And historically, these were big, expensive, you know, as I said, Battlestar Galacticas. And, and they wanted to build a, a series instead of distributed CubeSats, which were something the size of a, you know, a small microwave rather than a, you know, small bus. And, and a, you know, gee, that's not possible technically. And then how would that work? And who would the customer be? Because who else needs to see through clouds? Um, and it was a company called Capella Space. And, and of course, now, uh, you know, fast forward five years later, they actually have CubeSats on, uh, on orbit. And um, the National Reconnaissance Office is their customer. And, and so are some civilian agencies who want to track illegal fishing fleets and, and other things going on. So um, that was kind of an amazing, you know, your students come in and say, we're going to build our own satellites. And by the way, we're going to launch them on rockets, which barely were available at the time, which were SpaceX Falcon 9s. And so that's been one that's been great to watch because everybody kind of quotes Capella Space now as a as a company that could start in a literally in, in someone's uh, dorm room and end up in orbit. Um, uh, and that's that's probably my favorite example. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel. The science-backed language learning app that actually works. 
Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. Don't think small, I think, is the is the takeaway there. The great thing about the lean startup methodology is you can have a big idea, but you can start small to get there, and maybe you even launch a satellite out of your dorm room, which is, well, I mean, that happens at Stanford every day. Now, I'm curious, you know, we're in, a, in an environment, and you, and you sort of alluded to this, Steve, where um, the connection is, is fraying. People are not connected to each other. National service is not happening. We're seeing side effects in our society of people just not being able to talk to each other. And at the same time, you have all these talented kids graduating from schools like Stanford and others who can go to the private sector and get paid a lot of money and you know don't have to worry, even think about doing something for their country. And so I wanna ask each one of you, but I'm just curious, I'll start with you, Pete, you know, you're, yes, there are private sector applications to the things that people are developing, but there is also, you know, there's an important part of it, which is wanting to do something to make the world a better place. And, you know, I think, I think especially with the diplomacy work, for example, or some of these, you know, the military does a lot of good things, you know, and, and protects our country and, 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 and is out there helping people all over the world. How do you convince the young people who, you know, maybe looking at the bright, shiny riches being dangled down the road in, in, in Silicon Valley, that they should spend some time solving problems for the military and for the government? Yeah, I would say it's not nearly as hard as you think it is. And, and first, I would, I'll say it this way. I, I'm going to disavow people the idea that you have to join the military or the government to actually perform a national public service. And, and I think we've proved that with a hacking for defense class. I will tell you, every student that steps room in that room, or steps foot in the room, um, every mentor from industry who joins us, every professor that, that steps in, all of them are helping validate that the military intelligence agents are working on the right problems for the right reasons, and they are producing um, answers to things that they just wouldn't have access to. So, so that's one. The the second is is Steve has so um, eloquently laid out in the past is that we have inverted the relationship of of how technology um, comes into the government. So it's no longer government generated tech that's so critical. It's stuff coming from the civilian agencies. So um, by going off to you know commercial companies that are working on things that are important, both commercially and to the government. And by helping those companies find a path to actually work with the government, a lot of these students are actually performing a, a more important service than they would if they'd actually sat at a desk inside the Pentagon. And, I, and we have dozens of them. That you know, anecdotally, you know, sixty percent of the students who take the Hacking for Defense class go on to continue working with the problem sponsor afterward, um, either directly or indirectly. Some, in fact, join the military 
or join an intelligence agency or do something else, but fully 60% keep up with the work that they were doing. So in many cases, you know, we call hacking for that's probably the best civics class in the world. But it's giving students the opportunity to learn about the military and the government while working on a problem that's important with real people that gives them real experience that, that will be useful for the rest of their lives. So uh, I, I think it, it, it truly is a, you know, one of the best opportunities for them to gain some insight while performing a national public service that is then a model for them for the rest of their lives. And they realize they can work in a commercial world and still do this. And it's still important work. Steve, how do you see that, that the, the sort of the, the, the challenge, or I guess Pete, it doesn't sound like it's that much of a challenge, but of getting people excited about working on innovations that have, you know, real implications for military and government. If you're an innovator, you, you, you tend to be capable of seeing over the horizon, at least, at least over the next hill, better than, than most people. And one of the things that's becoming apparent in the last five years, and certainly in the last year or so, is that the U.S. and now China are kind of feel like the 1930s in the United States. You know, there's a neo-totalitarian view in, in China of what the world looks like, and there's a, you know, messy democratic view of what, what the world looks like for democratic regimes. And they're going to come into conflict more and more. Um, and, uh, and, you know, students uh, now have an interesting choice. Do you join hot social media companies that now have a track record of actually tearing the country apart? Um, you know, I, I consider, by the way, my students who still answer those, who send their resumes to those companies, kind of fail the class. Um, you know, it's like, really, you can't get a job elsewhere um, versus, you know, there's kind of a rising challenge to to not just your personal beliefs, but but maybe, you know, and not just the U.S.'s footprint for national power, but kind of a global challenge of how do we want to see the world in the next 10 or 20 years? And, you know, go ask the people in Hong Kong uh, how that turns out or even the Uyghurs in, in Western China. Um it, it's not been working well, and um, that's not the world I think I want to live in or have my students or my kids live in. And and the smart students, I think, are rising to that occasion. Um, they're understanding it's more than an interesting class. It's It might be the challenge for their generation. I want to end by asking each of you, what separates the truly great students that you work with from, you know, the, the, the rest of the crowd? So, Pete, I'll start with you. You're creating this new class of mission-driven entrepreneurs who are um, people who are attracted to the idea of solving the hardest possible problem they can find and building the perfect network to attack it. And, and then, you know, using the tools that we've taught them actually to grow something much bigger. In some cases, like Capella Space, it's build a company. And, and, and Payam, the, the CEO of that company, tell you today, he still applies to be learned in the class five years later. It is still an integral part of the company you build on. So, I, yeah, I would just say that, um, you know, that in itself is, is just recognizing the, the the art and science of being an entrepreneur is, is so many different skill sets wrapped in one. And I think that so many of the students walk out of this class having experienced what it's like to do it under pressure. That many have realized that entrepreneurship is, is their calling, and many others realize that that 
I'm happy to support an entrepreneur, but that's not going to be me. Uh, and I think the class has done a, a tremendous job at, at teaching young people about themselves and about each other. All right, Steve, last word to you. Well, I, you know, a couple things about entrepreneurs uh, is that, uh, at least for founders, they're closer to artists than any other profession. You know, they see things that other people don't, um, you know, or hear things or, 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 or can envision, you know, when everybody else just sees fog, they actually see through the fog and, and can see the end result. But for personality traits, you know, um, successful ones, you, you ask the question of who stands out and, and what, what traits they have. You know, they're relentless. They're agile. They're incredibly curious. I mean, uh, you know, they don't take the, the walls that people painted around them as kind of givens. They go, well, that's great. But, you know, like those are my rules and, and they move forward. Um, and, and you don't want the entire populace doing that. Or we would have chaos. But I think throughout history, there's always been a subset of human beings who weren't satisfied with what we had. Um and wanted something better and figured out how to make it. And, uh, you know, if that's you who are listening, um, you know, welcome to the club. It's a recessive gene, but it's in fact what makes the human race move forward. Um, it's, it's these iconoclasts who, um, you know, create things that we never had before. And uh, it makes the world quite interesting and, and hopefully for the better. All right. Pete Newell and Steve Blank, thanks so much for being here. Awesome. Thank you, Pat. Thanks for having us. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO.